Welcome to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with host Lane Nordland. Hey friends, welcome back to more conversations here on the Cattleman's Call podcast. Lane Nordland, happy to have you joining us here today. And of course, we talk about so many different subjects here on the Cattleman's Call anywhere from better management uh, for cattle nutrition, uh, sustainability, uh, direct-to-consumer marketing, uh, all the way to non-fungible tokens, talking about uh, Bitcoin just a few weeks ago. Uh, But one thing that that we've always touched upon when we discuss uh, the future of agriculture and just the state of agriculture with many of our guests is labor. And uh, labor is a challenge, and it's especially a challenge as uh, we look at the world post-COVID-19. And uh, I'm excited to discuss uh, how labor is a challenge, but also an opportunity uh, for the cattlemen and women out in the countryside. And so we have a great lineup of guests here today. We have Nick Jorgensen, the CEO and CFO of Jorgensen Land and Cattle out of Ideal, South Dakota, along with Dr. Russell Plaschka. He is he's the Agribusiness Development Program Manager and Workforce Development lead at the Kansas Department of Agriculture. So we are going to have these two gentlemen join us here today as we talk about uh, how labor is impacting producers today, but also what producers can do looking into the future about making labor, maybe not quite as much of a headache, but uh, as they join us here today, uh, uh, Nick, I, I would like to, to uh, first introduce you, of course, uh, out of South Dakota, uh, fourth generation uh, uh, to be a part of your operation, a young producer yourself. Let's just give a, a quick uh, overview of your background, your education, and uh, also your family operation there in the metropolis of Ideal South Dakota. Yeah, well, thank you, Lane, and, and thanks for having me. Uh, like you said, I'm CEO, CFO, Jorgensen Land Cattle, family-owned operation. Uh, been in Northern Trip County, South Dakota since 1909. So 113 years, I think, at this point, uh, we've been here. Uh, today, the, the business is owned by four partners. It's myself, my cousin, Cody, my father, Brian, and my uncle, Greg, are the four owners. We've got 27 full-time employees. And then depending on the time of the year, we'll have somewhere between five and 15 seasonal employees uh, do quite a few different things here in this operation. Uh, our main line of business is Angus cattle. So we're actually the largest seed stock producer in the United States. We will lease or sell close to 5,250 bulls this year. Uh, and so the, we, we also farm, which actually most of that is for feed for our feedlot, which houses our bulls. Uh, we run about 1,100 cows here in Trip County. And then we have a hunting lodge where we hunt pheasants that actually started here a few weeks ago. Uh, so we're really in a busy season uh, right now. My background a little bit, I'm a South Dakota State University graduate, uh, graduated 2013 with my undergrad in egg business. Uh, then I graduated in 2014 with my master's in economics. And then I graduated from Dakota Wesleyan University in 2016 with my master's in business administration. Um, been home on the operation for about 10 years, married to my wife, Ashley. We got four sons, seven, five, and two two-year-olds. So uh, they're the fifth generation. Uh, there, there's some older fifth generation members as well. But um, you know, I got, I got a, I got a business I got to leave intact for at least. I'm hoping at least one of those kids someday. So, 
Well, the labor that situation there, that, that kind of helps with having that many, many little ones running around too. But again, that's the goal of so many of these family operations is, is to keep going, to keep that uh, next generation uh, having that opportunity to come back and produce food and fiber here in the United States. And so thank you for that, that overview. And I look forward to talking more about your family's operation and your insight on labor within the livestock industry. And uh, now let's go to Dr. Russell Plashka here joining us from the Kansas uh, Department of Agriculture. I, and I should point out that uh, he will be a guest speaker uh, for the Cattlemen's Colleges coming up in uh, the uh, great city of New Orleans for the uh, 2023 Cattle Industry Convention and NCBA Trade Show. But Dr. Plashka, uh, l- let's talk a little bit about your background and your role there at the Kansas Department of Agriculture. Thanks, Lane. Yeah, I grew up on a pretty small, diversified livestock crop operation in eastern Kansas. Um, Of course, went to Kansas State University and got my degree originally in agriculture education. And unlike Nick, I won't say what year that was. It's been a few days ago. So uh, I I taught agriculture education at the high school level as an FFA advisor for 25 years. And then uh, during that time, also had my own small red Angus seed stock operation and have continued an interest in that and just till recently when we transitioned and about eight years ago I came to work for the Kansas Department of Agriculture and actually moved from southeast Kansas up close to Manhattan Kansas the little apple here Um, and since that time I originally started in the workforce development arena and working with business and industry and really trying to create some true connections to the high schools the secondary as well as some of the post-secondary institutions community and technical colleges, which, you know, through my teaching at high school level, we really don't do a great job of connecting with the high school as well as sometimes we forget about those junior colleges and technical colleges that are out there that those are great opportunities and great grounds to recruit some students from. So, you know, I've been in this role now and and have transitioned over to agribusiness development and just recently uh, was promoted to the Ag Marketing Director here at the Kansas Department of Agriculture. So I lead the entire division here at KDA. Well, thanks for that uh, that overview. And again, I'm excited about the the different insight that, that both of you will share this afternoon because we we have seen it uh, the the now hiring signs or the help wanted or our favorite restaurants only open four days a week instead of seven because. There is a labor shortage, and uh, and as we are in a post-COVID world, we can now say it's not just impacting all the, the businesses on Main Street or, or the bigger chains out there. It's impacting everyone, including all sectors of agriculture, from the producers in the countryside to, to the, the packing plants, all, all the way around. So, uh, Dr. Plashka, I'll start with you in, in terms of how we look at this labor. How has the labor demand changed over the past couple of years, and how did COVID really reverse, accelerate, uh, throw up red flags? How, how can we look at how labor has changed, especially in agriculture, the past few years? Boy, oh, you, you didn't start out with a softball question there, Lane. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I really wish Nick would have started with this one, but you know, COVID really, it's like you said, the packing industry really in Kansas here, you know, we're, we're home to a large, large packing industry as well as a large feeding industry in Western Kansas and central Kansas. So that really shined a spotlight on that, the the importance 
of that labor labor market and the importance of making sure that we have people in those plants doing those jobs day in and day out. I think on, on the farm and ranch level, it really, you know, the, especially the local food movement really was a lot of our producers. They saw an opportunity there to, to market their beef in a different way than they had before. Um, I know we worked with through a securing local food grant here in Kansas that allowed a lot of producers an opportunity to expand that business and expand into direct retail marketing. And through that, they also decided, wow, we need some more help. You know, whether that's on the production side, whether that's on the retail side, whether that's helping market these products. So it's really expanded the market, I think, in terms of labor. But the real issue goes back to, like you said, how do we find those those people to fill those jobs and opportunities for either out of high school or community or even a four-year university? And I think it's also changed how people look at, do I need that four-year degree? Do I need that two-year degree? Do I need that certification out of the community college? You know, the majority of our jobs in agriculture today, and, and we just completed a survey not too long ago, and and well over 30% still say, I require no degree or certification. I just want a warm body that's somebody that's willing to work and be there every day. And Nick, uh, you mentioned uh, y- your operation uh, is, a, is a large operation. You have several employees, seasonal workers uh, as well. Have you seen a lot of change in, in labor the, or let's just say turnover uh, since the start of the pandemic? And what are what are some of the challenges or, or growing opportunities you've seen uh, throughout the past two years? Yeah, so I'll address the, the turnover question first. I don't know that we've necessarily seen any, any sort of increased rates of, of turnover. Um, it's been kind of a confluence of factors for us here at Jorgensen Land and Cattle in that our business has grown about 40% um, since since COVID, uh, since 2020. And so we're seeing an increased number of open positions, but it's not because we've got people rolling out. It's just that, you know, we have five new positions that we're only able to fill two or three of them. Right. And in years prior, you know, it's, I'm just maybe separate from the COVID situation, but you look back, say, five years ago, it wasn't terribly difficult to, you know, go to a career fair or, you know, run an ad on the radio, run an ad in the newspaper, uh, on social media and get applicants, right? And, and you get a decent amount of applicants. Really, in the last 18 months, 12 to 18 months, have seen that fall off in a pretty significant way where, you know, you get social media is kind of a kind of a is an interesting one, right? We would get hundreds of applicants. Now, most of those were, you know, unqualified or, you know, didn't fit what we were trying to do. Right. But maybe you'd get a handful of five, 10, 15 people that maybe would be a good qualified applicant. Uh, we just ran job ad here 30 days ago and didn't get a single did not get a single application. And that's with, you know, we've seen wages go up, the, the pressure to increase wages has gone up and, and we've done that, but it's still, it's really hard to be competitive in agriculture. And I, you know, I don't know how in depth you want me to go here. Right. But I, I think a lot of it has to do with the nature of the work to be really honest with you, right. Where, um, it's physical, right. You can't do it from home. The hours are not short right? in a lot of cases. And, and we've made a lot of efforts in our operation to try and minimize that treat it less like a life and more like a, like a job, right. For our employees. But even then it's just, it's really hard to compete. You know, when this, when it's a, when it's a job seekers market, it's so hard to compete 
just to get someone to come do a traditional job in agriculture, running a feed wagon, driving a truck, you know, moving cows, processing cattle. You really just got to keep your nose to the grindstone and, and always be looking. Well, it's such a challenge, especially in southwest Montana. I, uh, we, we, we are in central Montana, but down near Bozeman, Montana State University, in that area, they have uh, Dairy Queen McDonald's posting anywhere from 20 to $27 an hour. And again, it, bringing up your point, Nick, of it's hard work. And when folks can literally go and get a job at uh, a fast food chain restaurant and make more money than what so many producers could even imagine uh, seeing as a wage uh, on an operation, uh, that, that plays into it as well. But, you know, Nick, I, I'd like you to also expand about the, the culture and the engagement that uh, your, your family business has uh, with your staff. As you mentioned, you haven't really seen a large shift with COVID, but you've seen an expansion and you probably do have employees that have been there for, for a lot of years and they're very qualified and they're, they're a part of this family business as employees. So what do you do to make people feel valued and, and making, you know, working in production agriculture worthwhile and have an employee stay and, and, and for, for, for more than six months? Yeah. So before I address that, I'm gonna I'll make a comment about um, you know how long we've had people with us. So yeah. our our business ranges from our, our longest tenured employee is 42 years with us, uh, down to you know six months. What you see though, and this is a this is a very very firm trend we've seen in our operation, is there's a real stratification between um, age groups. The older generation of people are ones that have been with us, you know, 35, 40, you know, even say 10 or 15 years. Then there's another group of younger individuals that they're 10 years, like two, right? And you just, you see kind of where we see turnover is in that people my age. I mean, to be really candid is that's where we see turn. You know, we're not seeing turn in the people that are, that are 40, 45, 50. We're seeing it in that 20 to, to 30 year old range. And I can't, you know, I can't say exactly why that is other than, you know, I, I think that's a, Russell probably know more than me, but I think that's probably a, a general statistic, right? Is people my age just don't hold jobs uh, as long as they used to. But but anyway, back to your question about what we do to, to make sure that, you know, when we get an employee, right, that, that we can keep them. So I mentioned it in my first answer. One of the switches we made, uh, this was probably four, four years ago when we kind of initiated a culture change in our business of, Traditionally, when you work on a farm and ranch, you live there. I mean, there, there's a lot of farms and ranches where it is a seven day a week, 12 hour a day job. I mean, your life is dedicated to, to that operation, right? Now there's positives there. You, you become a part of the family. Um, you get integrated into that whole thing. The downside is you don't have another life, right? Your life is that operation. And what we saw was especially once again, people my age, we weren't going to get them to, to buy into that. This is your life. Right. And so what we had to do is we, we sat down and deliberately said, all right, this is a farm and ranch, but this is going to be as much as we can make it be a eight to five Monday through Friday job for our people right now. There's, there's always circumstances, right? I mean, we can't control the weather. Uh, we can't control planting season. We can't control calving season. We just have got to be there all the time, right? But on a regular week, you know, barring some, you know, seasonal circumstance, this is a this is a 45, 50 hour a week job, right? And that was very deliberate. 
and we told our employees, we want to do this for you, not because we want you to work less, because we don't want around and we don't want you to pay you, but because we want you to work less, because we want you to go home. We want you to have a life, spend time with the kids and, and go go somewhere on the weekend, right? So you don't get so sick of being here that two years down the road, you want to go do something else. You know, I've talked to a lot of people um, and applying for jobs here that said, you know, the last job I was at, I, I didn't I didn't take one day off. I didn't get one day off the two years I was there. Now you learn that some of that's love, but some people just, there are people out there that still really just, they like to work. They want to put in hours. They want to be there, you know, but there's others that want the 45 hours and they want to go see their kids. I got to be candid. I'm one of those. I've got four kids. I'm going to be a dad. I'm going to be there. Right. So that was the first real deliberate thing was, all right, we're going to, we're not going to force you to work all the time. We're going to give you paid vacation. That's another one. One of the other things we focus on our operation a lot is is communication, uh, and it, it's it's sad to hear, but you hear just the feedback from a lot of farms and ranches that communication just doesn't happen very well. I think it's 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 the truth of the matter. I'm not trying to stereotype, you know. I'm sure there's a lot of operations out there that communications is good, but I've heard a lot of stories where, look, you know, I was there, didn't know what I was going to be doing minute for minute or hour to hour, and I had one boss telling me one thing. Usually, it was this brother. I had another brother telling me to do something else and it just caused problems. We focus um, very, very strongly in our operation on communicating well and having a good organizational structure. So people understand, okay, so for example, you know, I'm the CEO. I, I'm the CEO, frankly, to my dad. Now that's, there's a dynamic there, right? That is, is different than a regular CEO, but it's there to imply there is a chain of command. And when you have a problem, this is the person you're to speak to, right? And you're, this is who's supposed to give you orders. Every Monday morning at 7.30, we bring our whole team in to our office, and we just we take an hour to talk about what went on the week before and what's going to go on this week, right? Just so they know they've got direction, right? Day-to-day -day direction on what's going to be going on. Um, and, of course, things always change, right? But, I mean, just the simple fact that we're communicating about it in some way makes a big difference. Another thing we do is we're, we're 20 miles from the closest town, we provide lunch for our employees uh, every day of the week, Monday through uh, it's Monday through Sunday, um, which is actually, you know, we, we do it so they don't have to pack a lunch or they don't have to run to town for an hour. That was the original kind of idea, but what it kind of morphed into, in my opinion, is it's a great team building moment, right? Because 95% of our employees come in every day at noon and we're all in the same room. So even if you're not talking shop, right, you're, you're still communicating with each other. You know where everyone's at. You know what this person is doing. And it just keeps everyone apprised to the entire situation of the operation, right? And I think that helps with the team building and the culture. We also have another thing uh, that, we, that we rolled out this year that we call our, we call it Pulse Award. And what we do is every Monday at our meeting, we, we, we nominate our employees are to nominate someone in the last week that they thought did a really did really well, did something uh, throughout the course of the week that was over and above what we what would have been expected of them, or you know worked extra hard, helped somebody out, and we call that out in the meeting so we can take some time and, and talk about the positive nature of what goes on, right? And they get it, they get twenty five dollars. The person who nominates them gets twenty five dollars, and we've got a little reward thing going. The idea there is just so that we're focusing on the positive stuff that we do, right? Because these people, these 27 people work together all day. I mean, listen, we all know it. They, they get at each other's throats, the, you know, things happen. And sometimes it's really hard to step back and, and remember all the good stuff that we do. 
all the good stuff everyone does. So taking even just 10 minutes to recognize it um, really feels to us like we've made a good step in you know building that team. Now there's a whole bunch of other stuff too, Lane, that I'm talking for five minutes. So. Hey, no, that, I, I've been enjoying everything you have said so far, and we can dive into some of those other items too. But uh, uh, Dr. Boschka, you know, not not everyone can have a business, uh, a, a weekly schedule, and everything like like Nick's family operation does. And I take my hat off to them because when you can focus on the positive, when you can listen to concerns from employees, uh, that's something that so many cattle uh, operations. Uh, that's one of the breaking points for so many people is just communication. Uh, I guess from from your perspective on things, uh, what 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 is more of a more manageable approach that some producers take in your neck of the woods, or or in your opinion, you know, people that have one to five employees that uh, are more of a, a small operation, uh, whether that's feedlots or uh, or cow calf, whatever it might be. I guess what's your take on that? Well, and Nick kind of hit a really, a really big one there that I think it's, it's kind of like we talked about the, the generation, you know, is it a generational thing with the younger generation on what they expect out of that career or that job? And, and Nick hit it, it's that flexibility component, you know, how flexible am I with that schedule? You know, I may not have kids right now. I may have a, I may have a significant other, I may have a wife or a husband that I need to attend to as well. Do I have that flexibility in my schedule? So even with those smaller employees, the smaller number of employees, how flexible are they on that schedule? Other things, um, you know, a lot of operations allow them to run their own cattle along with theirs, you know, so it's not necessarily a profit sharing, but I talked to one producer and he said, you know, once he started doing both, he does both cattle and land, so they're farming as well. And once he allowed, or not allowed, but once a, an employee bought a quarter section of ground or something, or or bought a few, bought into the herd, their mentality of the whole operation changed. It shifted from, well, it's gonna take me so many hours to haul the hay off of the ground this year. It's gonna take me so long to work the cows. Instead, they started looking at, all right, it's gonna cost me so much a pound of gain. It's gonna cost me this much to do that. You know, they started looking at their part of that operation, which feeds into the entire part of the operation. So it really gives them a sense of ownership. And to kind of Nick's point, you know the the idea of serving lunch is is really catching on across i would say across the industry you know i talked to one producer they actually hired a full-time cook on their ranch to they cook breakfast every morning for the entire crew they pack lunches for them and a lot of times during the busy season they're getting all three meals right there at the farm so i think that flexibility and and that sense of ownership and sense of, you know, I'm a part of something a little bit bigger. And I think that also speaks to the younger generation, whether you're talking Gen Zs or some of those uh, younger millennials, it's, it's really about, am I a part of something a little bit bigger? And what's, what's the end goal of this operation? Now, granted, there's, it's like Nick said, you, you've got those guys that they're still hard workers and they just want to put in as many hours as they can. I don't care whether I get home or not. I'm going to be there sun up, sundown, and, and through the night if I need to be. Um, but we really need to attend to make sure that to get those employees. It's like Nick said, you know, so many of these operations, they'll put out help wanted and five years ago, they'd have a hundred applicants and today they can have it open for a hundred days and get zero. So how we're attracting employees has changed dramatically and where we're looking for those employees are changing dramatically. And 
and changing almost daily, so to speak. So what are some of the more proven, again, Nick pointed out that uh, you could run an ad on radio or or social media, and and this has all changed. Uh, Here in the fall of 2022, uh, what are some proven strategies that uh, producers trying to find employees, what are some proven ways? I mean, is is word of mouth the best? Is it recommendation from a neighbor? What, What are you seeing in Kansas and the surrounding region? I'm taking notes here. <laughs> well, we've all seen those companies and businesses that are that are doing the sign-on bonuses. Well, I've talked to several producers that now there's referral bonuses. So if you refer an employee and they they hire on and they're there for you know a few weeks, 60 days, 30 days, whatever the case may be, not only does that new employee get a signing bonus, but you're going to get a referral bonus. And it's a lot of times a matching bonus. So they're looking at that as probably you you said it you know word of mouth your best advertisement is your current employees if they're happy they're going to talk about how great a place it is to work how great the culture is how great the people are the benefits whatever the case may be they're the ones that's really going to promote your business the other thing that i think is that we take for granted and i know i did as a high school ag teacher i did a and i i admit it to everybody and i apologize to my students every day is that I did a terrible job promoting the companies and the farms and ranches in my local community because, you know, it was ingrained in us at the time, go to college, get a degree, get a, get a great job, get away from this small town and this small region. There's nothing wrong. There's a ton of our students that want to stay local and they love to stay in that local community or that region. And we've got a lot of great opportunities in all parts of the country especially in the rural areas, a great way of life and great companies and farms and ranches to work at that provide a great living and a great career. And I think that's that's the other thing that a lot of our local students really don't understand. They may drive by Nick's place or that lane, they may drive by your place and, and say, oh, that's a ranch and he's just feeding cows and, and calving out cows and that's all there is. It's a lot of hard work, but they don't see all the other stuff that's behind the scenes especially with our larger operations. They don't understand the back office operations that's happening, whether it's human resources and accounting and and taking care of that. If you're a seed stock operated, the amount of marketing and whether you're putting together a yearly sale or several sales and building that catalog and, and working with all the customers, all those other jobs that they may not understand, we do we do a pretty poor job of advertising or not necessarily advertising, but really displaying to our local youth what these opportunities are in their backyard. Well, I think that's such an important point. Uh, when, when I graduated, one of my best friends, I mean, he, he won national FFA mechanics. The team won national FFA mechanics. A uh, great lineup of kids. I think everyone except him went to a four-year program. And I, I don't know what exactly the curriculum was called, but he, he went to that North Dakota State University's two-year program, you know, NDSU. SDSU and Montana State, we kind of have a grudge against uh, those uh, those bison up at North Dakota State. And uh, we did beat SDSU in the playoffs, though, last year, I should point out. But then NDSU beat us at the big game. So uh, it's just an evolving cir- circle here, Nick. But uh but my buddy, you know, all he wanted to do was be a farmer and uh, not really dive into the livestock end, but he did the two-year program that NDSU uh, uh, has, kind of the, the basic farming and mechanics and everything like that. And, and, and he's got quite an operation going, and he pretty much started from scratch. He didn't come from a big family operation. But I just think of all of the, the people that were in our ag education program that 
that would have been a perfect fit, that two-year program or an apprenticeship or just going to work. How, how do we change that mindset, uh, Russell, that we have that you have to go get that four-year degree? I mean, we're seeing everyone, all the student debt conversations and everything like that. When, when a person can literally have no debt from trying to seek a degree that maybe they're not even interested in, you know, how, how do we get these local uh, producers or, or the, the feed companies or ever, anything like that? How, how do we have that conversation more? Is it through 4-H and FFA or do we have to get these local agribusinesses uh, together as well? All of the above. Um, one of the things that we tried a few years ago and we continued to do it was we it's called the immersion experience. And it's really where we partner with a business or an industry that's very close to a, a a town or a community that has four or five schools that's within 30 minutes of them. And we bring, you know, five or six students that have a little bit of interest in that career. Um, one of the probably the most successful one we've done was at a feed yard here in South Central Kansas, um, Ward Feed Yard, part of the Innovative Livestock Solutions system. We did the feed yard experience and we brought, I think we had 20, 25 students there. And those students were, there was about half of them female, half of them male. They were some that were truly interested in the livestock industry and some that had driven by the feed yard and said, I, I wonder what really happens there. So, and the cool thing was those students got to drive one of the brand new feed trucks. They got to lay out a, a strip of silage in one of the bu empty bunkers. They got to drive one of the payloaders. Uh, and that also involved the industry. So that involved, you know, Rotomix representatives that, that involved some of the John Deere construction equipment guys that supply the payloaders. It brought their technicians out as well. We involved the, the uh, nutrition specialist there with Ward Feed Yard, and he actually had the students create a, a feed ration, had a recipe card and had all the ingredients in the feed mill, and they had to develop this ration. They worked with the livestock evaluator to determine which pen of cattle was ready to go to market, what percent was going to weigh what, what percent was going to grade choice and prime and so forth. And so ran them through every aspect of the feed yard, including the back office. So they got to see the computer software and work with the, the guys that sell that software and install it to see how it fed into the animal health system as well as the feeding system. And they got to see how computerized the feed trucks were, the, the mill itself. So out of that, and the cool thing was that before we left for that day, there was, I think, two or three that picked up an application to work at the feed yard itself. There were two or three that visited with the industry reps, whether that was the Kenworth dealer or Rotomix or Murphy Tractor. They got to, they said, hey, how do we work for you guys? What do we need to do? And the the, the message was that the the most degree or the most time you're going to have to spend in school is about nine months and you can get a job with whether it's Murphy Tractor or whatever. If you wanted to work at the feed yard, hey, you want to start part-time this summer? Come on and you can have a job here in the summer. Because the cool thing about that whole organization, and that was also a really key point to get across to those students were that the guy that was the head of ILS at the, never went to college. He started in the feed yard world, working at the feed yard, and worked his way up all the way through. So that really showed the students that, hey, I don't need to go to college, but if I want to, I've got an opportunity to come back here or I can start here right out of high school. I think that's the biggest message. And also to include the decision makers, whether that's the school counselor, the school principal, or whether that's the parents. 
So it, it really isn't just a 4-H or FFA thing because unfortunately we don't have programs across the country in every single school and not every single student takes it anyway, but involving those decision makers to be a part of that, to see it along with the students, because if I'm excited about it and I go back to the classroom, I'm going to get the students excited about it. So it's a two-way street. Well, it's almost like in Montana and other states, I know fourth grade is kind of when the ag education days or or tours always take place. It's almost like they should have one for juniors in high school to, to maybe go out and do that as well, just uh, for, for anyone in extension or, or the local communities that, that do these ag days. Because um, it's a lot different than a career fair when you're walking around and uh, l- looking at uh, that or, or a, a university uh, of the days where it's a college fair as well. I, I just think that could be a way to, to really reach, you know, so many people that don't don't have a farmer ranch to go back to. They're a part of these rural communities. They want to be involved. But, uh, Russell, I, I want to maybe ask, uh, obviously, and I really like that you refer to Gen Z as well, because uh, Nick and I always, everyone calls millennials, you know, the, 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 this latest generation, Gen Z, they always get called millennials. And we get the blame for everything that they're doing. We're in our 30s and 40s. 40s, uh, the millennial crowd here. So I really take my hat off to you there because, you know, we were the generation that still had that internet noise, you know? So, so I appreciate that. But kind of going back to that point of that Nick was making that this younger generation, you know, they want that flexibility. They want to be able, you know, they might not stick around with the job for one or two years. Do you think that is an entitlement issue? Do you think it's just uh, something that deals with, you know, there's there could be another job opportunity? Or could that be like the generation that, that my dad came from? He was, the 80s were so tough. And we were told that the generation, and, and, and you're probably in that same boat too. It's just like, go get an education because there's not, uh, you can't make a living in agriculture. Do you think that could play into there as well, where that generation that came through the 80s and early 90s, where they couldn't go right back to the to the farm or ranch, my, my dad included on that, do you think that could be in it? And then also the entitlement aspect of that? that that's a really long question, yeah. but, you know, it, it's about as good as the first one I asked. Yeah. I You know, I, I think about that a lot because, it's like you said, I was a product of the 80s. I graduated high school in 86, and... My counselor thought I was crazy as heck to to want to be an ag teacher to stay in agriculture because there was nothing more that I wanted to do was to go back to the farm, but there wasn't enough room for me on the farm, you know. And 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 that's the situation we see a lot of these college students or any even high school students coming out that they may have a farm or ranch to go back to, but they may have two or three other siblings and there's just not enough room. And I and I always think about uh, Dr. David Cole from Virginia Tech. He talks about, you know, if you have a son or a daughter that wants to come back from the farm, make them go away and work for somebody else for two or three years, and they'll be much more profitable when they come back to you. But, you know, you you talked about the entitlement, and I thought about that as Nick was talking earlier, that entitlement issue. I don't think it's entitlement. I don't think they feel like they're entitled that. I think that at this point, they don't want to be locked into a career like they feel like maybe their parents or grandparents were. You know, I come from that generation and my parents came from that generation is you start to work for somebody. It's it's not just loyalty. It's a sense of I owe it to you. Stay here as long as you'll have me and as long as I can. Mm-hmm. And I think with uh, the millennials and even 
the younger millennials and even the Gen Zs we talk about, um, they're, they're looking for that next opportunity, I think. It's what's next on horizon. What more can I do? You know, what more is out there? And that's not all of them. And, it, you know, we generalize a lot. But for the most part, I don't think it's a sense of entitlement anymore. I don't feel like, especially with the ag kids, with the ones looking at agriculture, I think they understand that, that agriculture is no place. There's, there's no place for entitlement in agriculture. So I don't think that's the issue. I think it's more of, a, you know, what's next? How can I grow in this position? If I can't grow here, I need to go somewhere else and do that growth. Mm-hmm. And Nick, obviously, uh, you talked about just uh, some different strategies that you utilize uh, in the business as well. Uh, And we talk about maybe people coming right out of high school or out of a two-year program, uh, and maybe they do need some training or skill development and and some actual experiential hands-on learning before they can really, you know, understand fully what they're doing in in their job capacity. Uh, Do you offer trainings or development or or give people an opportunity to go to an extension workshop to, to, to learn how things are, 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 are doing differently across the county. Uh, what's that look like on your operation, if I may ask? Yeah. So there's several things we, we try and do there. I mean, the first one is we do offer, we offer paid internships for, you know, high school kids, college kids, tech school kids. And, you know, we say internship, but I mean, what it really is, it's, it's summer job on the job training, you know, you learn about how things work in agriculture. That's been really successful for us. You know, I'm not going to say that we've hired a ton of kids that have been interns with us. And honestly, the reason for that is most of these kids are doing exactly what um, Dr. Poshka said. They're going away from home for a few years, getting some experience, and then going back to the operation, right? And of all the people I wish I could hire, it's it's them, right? Because they're 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 phenomenal. They're 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 great young individuals, but they've got an operation to go back home. So we do that. As far as trainings go, uh, so we work with uh, you know our nutritionists, with with our equipment dealers, uh, with South Dakota State Extension, uh, and just setting up you know training days uh, whenever it's possible for us to do. So we take our feedlot team and uh, we try and get a South Dakota you know, SDSU extension personnel to educate them on bunk reading and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we've done several lunch and learns over the last few years, right, where maybe an animal health rep comes in, talks about, you know, proper vaccine administration, or the dealer comes out and, and does a real in-depth training with us on how to operate a certain piece of, you know, whether it's a combine or a silage chopper or a baler, feed wagon, that kind of stuff. Um, I'm not I'm not going to lie to you. I, I wish we, we did more of that. Um, to be really candid, I, part of it's just it becomes a time thing, right? Coordinating that with, with the dealer and finding a day when we're not busy, right? Where we can sacrifice that time to make sure that everyone, and then making sure it's something that everyone will get something out of. Um, but we have found those to be beneficial, you know, when we've been able to regularly do Well, thanks for sharing your, your uh, experience in that because I think that's one thing that so many producers that that do have employees that work for them need to understand is sometimes uh, just saying, go out and do it, you'll figure it out on your own, isn't the best strategy. Just today with my father-in-law, I made sure and asked him, 10, probably 10 different ways about how he wanted me to do this one little task because it was going to be a lot easier for me to do it right the first time and uh, (laughs) then to uh, have to go back and fix the mistake, especially with the cement that we were working with uh, this morning. 
But uh, I think that's one thing that so many, whether it's a, the, that, the, the new generation that's in management on the operations or the, the more experienced generation on the farms or ranches, is just how important it, that, that continuing education uh, is. And uh, I, I just uh, w- was sitting here thinking um, about, you know, we were talking about how the 1980s really shaped rural communities. And we saw uh, f- throughout the last 30 years, so many of our rural communities continue to get smaller and folks not moving back. And then COVID happened and we're seeing a lot of families, maybe they're not full time involved in farming or ranching, but maybe they want to raise their kids where grandma and grandpa live, and they both can also work from home. Uh, I, I, that might be an area where, where we take this, but recently I, uh, my, uh, my great uncle uh, traveled up to Montana. He lives in California. He's 96 years old. You wouldn't think it. He still lives on his own in California, and, and he was a Montana farm kid. Uh, he was in World War II and uh, went to work for the FBI and then worked for Lockheed Martin. That's how he ended up in California. And it, it was just so interesting talking with him because we were talking about how COVID has changed the, the, the workplace. And he worked on top secret <laughs> projects at Lockheed Martin, stealth bomber, stuff like that. But he always hired Montana farm and ranch kids to come work for them because they had work ethic. And he knew that if he gave them a, a task, whether that be top secret or just as easy going and getting copies made uh, uh, of something, he knew they, that he could depend on on them. And so I, I, I guess that was always interesting to me is, you know, that these kids were so reliable back in the, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. And we were sending off our best workers to go work for these companies, but it was because they learned how to work. And Uncle Billy was talking about, he goes, man, I, I just think at this time of the year, all the thrashing machines would come through and we'd be harvesting wheat. And we, we look at how much agriculture has changed, but our workforce and the way we work has changed so much. And we do have kids that do want to go get that four-year degree. Maybe they can't go and uh, back to an operation right away. So uh, kind of, I don't know, that. I just really wanted to tell that story a little bit. Maybe I have no point in saying that, but... You know, when we look at the, the labor market right now, especially for College of Agriculture students, Dr. Plashka, what jobs are available right now? Maybe not in the production agriculture realm, but where are we maybe seeing a majority of these College of Agriculture students with their four-year degrees going? Well, there's still the traditional jobs that we typically associate with agriculture. I mean, there's tons of sales jobs and whether it's in the feed or whether it's in reproduction, whether, you know, and we're starting, we're seeing a lot more of that, especially on the reproduction side with the explosion of beef on dairy with the, with the embryo transfer, you know, there's a lot of more genetic companies that are popping up and looking for specialists or technicians. You know, I, I really see the, the, that technician role being more and more in demand, not necessarily the four-year scientific agronomy or reproduction specialist or ruminant nutritionist. It's it's that middle of the road that maybe that's a lot more in demand. Um, when we talk to students a lot of times, so I still go out and we talk to students at the high school level, community and technical college, and, and still at the four-year university here at Kansas State. And we look, talk to some of those College of Ag students, probably the most popular careers that they want to go or the reason they're at college is want to be a veterinarian. Everybody wants to be a vet. Um, They want to go into ag education or extension work. 
or they're going back to the farm. And that's the goal is to get back to the farm. And again, we've already talked about that issue of going back to the farm, but the, the job opportunities are still endless. And, you know, and I, we could name a bunch of them, but they're still the traditional ones. We think of finance, we think of economics and, and analyzing the data. There's a ton of opportunities with companies looking at the agricultural space and expanding into that agricultural space with the amount of data. So when we think of data analysis, the layers upon layers of data that we compile, even in the livestock side, we know that the agronomic data is there, but now they're seeing more and more ap application in the livestock side. You know, whether it's genetics or reproduction or, or, or range management, whatever the case may be, you know, the, the opportunities for that analytics of the data and how do we use that? How do we make it profitable for the producer as well as for the consumer? And how do we tie it all together from pasture to plate? You know, that the explosion in that market is 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 almost exponential right now. I mean, there's so much interest in how do we how do we handle that data and how do we market that data and sell that data to a way that it really helps everybody along that value chain. No, definitely. And as I mentioned, COVID, I believe, has changed that dynamic of where some people can work. Um, that's one reason we were able to move in the last year to our own homestead, be not too far from the in-laws. Both my wife and I work from home. Uh, does that work well some days? No, not really. My wife wants to, to hit me with a frying pan half the time when I'm uh, interrupting her, her work. But, you know, the, it, for us, it was a goal to get back and to be able to do chores to be able to be pouring cement pads for water tanks as you know just a, a, a believe it or not it's a stress reliever for me when i'm not on air doing doing egg programming but that, that we wanted to do that but sometimes it's tough to be able to make that that move for for so many youth that are just out of college and uh, i guess what is a, what entices young people to come back to these rural communities and to be involved with farming and ranching i guess we could ask that in two ways and i want both of you to answer uh to, to have a shot at this is how do we entice a young person to come back to a farmer ranch and how do we entice a couple uh, spouses to come back to a farmer ranch because that's two different scenarios in my opinion yeah so you know i, I think ultimately probably the the, the attraction you know, back to, to agriculture. And I'm, I guess I'm speaking specifically about maybe an operations perspective, right? Like actually running equipment, driving truck, moving cattle. To me, the, the best success we've had from an attraction perspective is someone who already knows egg, right? And, and wants that lifestyle. Right. I mean, that's, those are the kind of people who do well, specifically seek it out and say, look, I, I want to be the guy that's out moving cows, or I want to be the, the girl running feed truck or, or whatever you say. Uh, and so you obviously can offer that experience intrinsically. Right. But then what makes it better is when they come into the fold and then understand, look, this isn't just, I didn't just come to a farm ranch. I came to a, a place that kind of a community, right? I have friends here. They treat me well. I'm not just an indentured servant to them. Right. And that's, that's the best luck we've had with, with an individual. Now, you know, a couple is a, a little bit different. I, I think they're, 
what what really is required is not only a good place to work but a strong community outside of work right like they they need to want to come back to to winter south dakota and, and have a good grocery store and have a good school and a good hospital uh, and then you know another one i wanted to mention while we were talking today was housing housing is extremely extremely difficult right now as a matter of fact to be really candid with you guys that's our number one problem i can i can i can I can grind and, and we can find applicants. The showstopper is always, I need a place to live. And, you know, a lot of these people just, you know, they're, they're young enough. They're not credit worthy. It's hard for them to get a, a mortgage. Houses that are for rent are extremely expensive. And that's what stops the deal is, Hey, I've got a family. I've got four kids. I want to come to the community, but there's nowhere I can rent that's affordable or that I'd want to live in. And then, then it's, it stops you. You're not going to uproot your family unless you know that all those things are all those boxes are checked, right? And in our part of the world, we've got a good community. You know, in Winter, South Dakota, we've got a good hospital. We've got a good school. Um, there are plenty of off-farm jobs to be had. You just need somewhere for them to live. And that is really difficult right now. Yeah, I would... I would definitely echo what Nick said. Uh, you know, I was remiss not bringing up housing before. I'm glad you did, Nick, because that is the number one issue outside of finding workers that, you know, in Kansas here, we've got uh, Hillmar Cheese Company that'll be coming into Dodge City in the next couple of years. And some of the dairies that are expanding or moving into Kansas, a lot of the dairies are already figuring it into their construction budget that they're going to build housing or apartment complexes in some of the small rural communities because the housing is just not there. I mean, we've, we've been very fortunate in Kansas to get some housing dollars. And so a lot of rural communities are, are starting to refocus again on housing. It's always been an issue, but now there's some dollars freed up to do that. Um, the other part of that that Nick brought up, I, I totally agree and just want to echo and, and emphasize that, that, being a part of something that's that's bigger than just a job that I'm not just going to work I'm I'm enjoying going to work because it's a great place to work it's a good family it's a good company it's a good culture and that we go back to that flexibility of if you're going to bring a spouse into the picture of it or a family and kids that there's that flexibility built in that hey I am going to be able to watch my kid play you know I remember growing up my father saw me play two football games my entire four years of high school you know, he was always working and doing something. So, you know, there's that flexibility that, yeah, I'm going to get to see my kid grow up. I'm going to be a part of that kid, my wife's activities. I'm going to be also a part of the community and making sure that the industry, you know, whether you're a beef operation, farm operation or an ag business, that you are a part of the community and helping that community develop, whether it's housing, whether it's those amenities that draw people back to communities, because that's, that's also the big thing when we talk about recruiting employees, especially the spouse, you know, what am I going to do in town? What is there to do in town? You know, how close is it to, to a decent, like I said, a decent grocery store, or if I want to go see a movie, you know, and I don't, I don't want to sit at home and Netflix, but I want to go somewhere and do something. Where's those amenities? I, I do want to echo Russ that. I think it should be a requirement. I wish I could make it so where if you're a parent, you just, you, you take work off to go to that, go to that game. Right. Cause I think, I think I grew up the same way and you know, 
neither you or I are upset about it, right? Because that's just the way it was. But but dad wasn't there. He was working. And I think they're just, we forget in agriculture that, look, it's pretty uncommon that you can't spare that two hours. Just just go. And, you know, we're, we're lucky in our operation. We've got enough people and they're staggered enough in age that, look, if we got one guy that's got to go every Friday to a football game or jump out Tuesday to go to a volleyball game, please go do that. Because I would rather have you miss work and be happy you saw your kid than have this, hey, I, I can't do it. It's because of work. And, you know, over time that, that builds up and it's not a healthy thing uh, for anyone involved. And I think too many people just disregard that. I, it's extremely important to me. Yeah, and I would also kind of follow up and say, you know, you t- Lane, you brought up the entitlement issue. I think if there's any bit of entitlement on new employees, it probably goes to exactly what Nick was just talking about is that I, I do not want to raise my kids like I was mm-hmm. raised in terms of being an absent parent, you know, that one parent is taking care of all the activities. That's probably the one area that they want to be ensure that when they go to work for somebody, they have that flexibility to be a parent and be a part of their kids' lives. And uh, not, not to switch gears totally away from this aspect of the conversation, but, you know, just just uh, having that opportunity to come and have a good job. So many people, though, are, are looking at, uh, you know, what 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 is a living wage when you're working in agriculture? What should the benefits look like? Is there health care? Is there a stipend if there's not health care? Um, is is there a gym in town that uh, that that one that you can go work out at after working all day? I, I I've literally had friends say that you know my my wife really wanted a gym so she could go work out near town and and I get it you know especially when when we've lived in the city during college and everything like that we we come accustomed to a certain way of life but a, a living wage is always a hot topic. And I know that, that Nick, this is probably a conversation that you and, and the family uh, uh, stakeholders discuss. Uh, what What is a living wage for an employee? What do those benefits look like? But I, I literally almost spit a drink out the other day when, when there was a uh, a friend of mine that uh, hires on uh, as a as a uh, as a ranch hand, and he believes he's worth eighty five thousand dollars a year. And there's no telling him any other diff. It, 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 there's just no telling him that I don't. I really don't think you are. Uh, but uh, and not saying he's not a hand, but that that discussion about a living wage and benefits. What are your take on what? What's your take on that? If I could give mine, and I, this is probably going to spin into a question, maybe for Russell here just a little bit. But you know, we run into the to the to the same sort of questions lane, right? And, and believe it, you know, I'll, I'll share a little bit of backstory. So our operation, all of our employees up until this year, we, we sal- they were salaried. And the idea was there, you know, slow time, fast time, no matter what, you could just count on, all right, this is what I'm going to get paid. Well, you know, what we were finding was that just in this new market, that just wasn't attractive to a lot of people, right? Because they do they do math back, right? And then they start figuring out what they're making per hour. And then, you know, they realize it's not competitive. So we switched, uh, which did lead, I mean, probably in our payroll probably led to, I'm going to guess somewhere between a 20 and 25% increase for about all of our employees, just, you know, switching to hourly and, and paying what we thought was a, a good fair wage. But one of the things that I have at least noticed is with people my age specifically, and we don't, we don't have a lot of 
you know, married with kid individuals here to be very candid. Benefits don't mean a whole lot. What we end up talking about at the end of the day is what did I, what did I take home cash, right? So we offer benefits. Don't get me wrong. I mean, we'll, we'll cover the insurance premium of the individual that works for us. We'll match HSA, you know, 200 bucks a month. We'll, we'll do retirement. You know, we, we give them, they get lunch, they get 10 days off. You know, there's all kinds of opportunity there, but ultimately those discussions go back to what am I, what am I taking home on the paycheck? And I don't, I, I think the issue there is probably partially our fault, right? I'm not communicating that, that value more, right? But it's what I see versus what is actually there, right? I don't see that premium. I don't see that health insurance that I'm not paying. I don't see that, that receipt, right? From McDonald's for lunch, you know, I don't see the fuel receipt. I don't see the the tire receipt. Um, and so we end up just competing on, we have a lot of employees that frankly just don't want benefits and don't ask for them. And you know, we don't get a lot of, a lot of value from them. And maybe, maybe that was kind of phrased as a question to see if maybe that our experience was congruent to other things you hear, uh, Russell, but it's just, it's been an interesting dynamic. Oh, I would, I would agree. The younger the generation, the less, the less they think about benefits. I know when I first started, I didn't, I didn't care about benefits. I was a single person. What did I, you know, I didn't, I was healthy. Um, and I think about my own kids that are, that are right out of high school and starting into the career. They're the same way. Benefits aren't a big thing to them, but I have talked to some people that just like what you talked about, Nick, and, and some of the producers we have here in Kansas that offer those breakfast and, and lunch and dinner and housing and so forth. So they it's just like when you start with a business, you have your your basic salary, your base salary, and then they also have the fringe broke out as well. And they show us, you know, when we start with an agribusiness, this is what your base salary is going to be, but this is what your benefits, your healthcare package, and everything else. These are the this is the dollars that you're getting via that. So I have heard a lot of producers saying they're breaking it down and showing their new employees, you know, because we're giving you breakfast lunch and sometimes dinner and you're getting this house this is that extra twenty thirty thousand dollars a year that you're not having to spend that you're basically getting as part of your salary as that fringe benefit so they're they're talking to them about that some of the and and i know you just went off mute there nick but i had one other thing to kind of put in there that that some of the things that uh were we just completed a survey and over 80 percent over the past two years have increased their hourly rates anywhere from two to five dollars higher over the past two years just to keep employees and to attract new employees and that's i would say some cases might be on the low end so and then and the other ones that some of the main benefits that we saw that have been added over the years over the past four years uh, a lot more flexible work schedule which we've covered a lot performance-based increases and also bonuses and that could be on you know i heard one producer say that that in the spring when they're calving they offer a calving bonus if they you know hit a certain percentage they're going to get a bonus on that calving bonus so and as well as even reproduction you know when they're talking about ai crews and so forth the conception rate bonuses and then of course paid vacations and which a few years ago it was kind of unheard of in agriculture that anybody got a paid vacation. Now that's another added benefit. I was just, I was going to ask Lane a question there. You, you know, you mentioned your friend who wanted to be a ranch hand, make $85,000 a year. 
did he go and get a four-year degree? No. Yeah, okay. Well, that's, I was assuming the answer was yes, because, you know, I, I think one of the things we found over time is we actually, we have a harder time with individuals who went to a four-year school and then come back and just get an operations job. Uh, and the answer to the question is, listen, you're frankly overqualified. You're overqualified, you know, to be to be an individual sitting in a feed truck or moving cows, assuming that you actually got value out of the degree, right? And and your peers are probably going out and working for a bank or an equipment dealer as a salesperson and might have the opportunity to make that. Mm -hmm. But to say that those should be on the same level footing because of where you see other, I mean, you just got to understand it's a different job. It's a it's a totally different job. My opinion is here's what it comes with an operations perspective, right? It comes, it comes without stress, right? There, you know, there, you don't have, there, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of, of requirement there. You know what I mean? I mean, listen, Hey, there's still stress. Hey, we expect, we expect, you know, a certain amount of calves to be alive and stuff like that. But, you know, you don't have the, the added responsibility of worrying about a balance sheet or meeting a sales budget or balancing a checkbook, you know, that kind of stuff. And I'm not, I'm not in any way trying to, to degrade a certain kind of position, right? But there's, there's, I mean, there's value in every position. This is, Hey, you got to do a job and you got to do it right. And we need you to do it right every day. Um, and I just, in my, you know, there's, there's equity there. The trade-off is you don't have as much to worry about when you go home talking about wages again you know there's so many producers out there that have a mindset of well this is what i paid employees back in 1978 uh, in 1984 <laughs> nick shaking his head put his hands on his face um we know there's a lot of producers out there that that, that think that that a person can can make a living on a thousand dollars a month uh pre you know pre-tax uh and there's also workers out there, day riders, you know, up in our neck of the woods, that there's there's producers that still think $75 is enough to have a guy come and do some day riding for him. And when you pencil out, and I've seen a lot of discussions on Facebook about how a lot of these uh, cowboys that day ride, how $100 or whatever d doesn't pencil out when they're driving the distances they do. But there's a, another aspect of that where they could be riding a colt that they could sell for for several thousand dollars down the road i'm not i don't want to go down that lane but back to the point of uh producers that think it's 1984 and and wages need to be the the way they are what uh russell how, how do you approach that and what do you hear from people in your neck of the woods on how to have a viable future in agriculture we, you do have to have a livable wage and again i it's a little bit of hubris when we talk about my acquaintance who wants $85,000 to be a ranch hand. Um, but how do we relay that in today's terms that a livable wage is needed? Uh, I don't know whether I have a good answer for that, honestly, Lane. Uh, Nick may have a good answer on that, but it, it's tough to talk to producers because when we talk to producers, you know, and I asked him, I said, so what are you starting your employees out? I've got a lot of producers that are still starting employees out at nine, $10 an hour. And, and in our area, that's pretty low. And Nick, I saw your eyes bug out there. <laughs> so, you know, but at the flip side, I've got some producers that say, you know, we're starting our employees out at 15. That's just, they've got to start somewhere and 15 seems like a pretty good number for our area. Um, but trying to convince a producer that 
you know, it is not 1984 anymore. And that's the way we've always done it. And I'll find somebody to do the work. Well, they may find somebody, but the quality that they're going to get is exactly what they pay for. And I think that's probably the biggest thing that we try to talk to them about is you're going to get exactly what you pay for. And, and a lot of the people coming out now may not have the, the great ag background that we had growing up. And I, I'm a big, when I talk to groups, that's one of the big things that I talk about is the good old ag kid is not out there anymore. There's not very many good old ag kids that you can hire. If there's a good old ag kid in college or, or community college or coming out of high school, he's got an operation to go back to. You're not going to get him away from the farm. So how do we attract and, and encourage those that are interested in agriculture to understand what agriculture is and understand the different jobs and opportunities there are, and then have the patience and the time and the resources to train them like you need them to work. Nick, what's your take? Yeah, well, I, you know, my take is, look, if you're not going to pay what the market is asking for, you're not going to get help, right? I mean, ultimately, um, especially in a market like this, where even people who, who do pay, you know, what would be considered, you know, a fair or maybe even above average wage can't get employees. I mean, your operation is just going to have to stay where it's at or get smaller. I mean, I know a lot of people in our area that have had to shrink their operation, right? Cause they, cause they lose a hired man and, you know, don't want to deal with people and that is just going to inhibit your growth. And if that's, if that's where you want to be, I guess that's fine. But, you know, you're talking to a young individual like myself, I'm not going to let that be the excuse, right? Um, you know, if, if we need people, we're just going to do what the market tells us to get, to get people. Right. And, you know, this is maybe a slight diversion, but, you know, one of the things very candidly we've had to do the last few years is start using the H2A program. I was going to ask that. Just simply because, right. I mean, you have five job openings. I'd love to hire, I'd love to hire a local person for all five of them. But when I can't get applicants, I got to go somewhere where, where I can get applicants. Right. And so, you know, we've, we've used the H2A program as a, as a nice way to handle that seasonal labor. And I don't see that going away. As a matter of fact, next year, we're going to double the amount of H-2A workers that we get, um, you know, which leads us to a lot of things. I mean, it, it sends us down the path of having to have housing, having to have vehicles, which, you know, we're probably going to, most operations are probably going to start doing anyway, like, like was mentioned, the larger operations. But it has been a nice outlet for us because you don't have an issue finding applicants there. Mm-hmm. You really don't. And it's more of an issue of the cumbersome the process of getting those h2a workers and you know especially during COVID, yeah you know making sure the embassies were actually open and they could get their interviews instead of being scheduled 180 days out and that's way past the time you need it and i you know you know i it doesn't matter where we're at in the united states h2a is is becoming more and more popular i know here in kansas we've got a lot of custom harvesters we've got a lot of producers that are using h2a now that never did before and everybody is I think our state numbers almost tripled over the past couple of years in terms of how many applications that were applied for for H-2A workers. And, you know, it, it makes sense, especially for those producers that are more on the farming side, you know, especially most of those that workers are coming out of South Africa. So it flip-flops yep. the, the calendar year, you know, they come here for harvest, they go home for harvest, come here for planting, go home for planting. So, you know, I don't, that's not going to slow down any of the need for H-2A and the need for that year-round H-2A and, and immigration reform and reform in the H-2A process. 
has, has got to happen if we're going to see the labor issue ease up any at all. I don't want to digress into a political argument here, but right. you, you made a really good comment there. We've we've got um, some H2A guys that, that are really, really, I mean, they're, they're, they're fantastic people. They do a good job for us. Uh, we need them. And one of those individuals actually really wants to become a U.S. citizen. Right. And you can talk about the reasons he wants to leave South Africa. That's separate. Right. But he'd love to become a U.S. citizen. I mean, he has a good job, wants to contribute to society, wants to pay tax, wants to bring his family. It would take him five years and cost us because you have to through the H2A program. The employer has to sponsor. It would cost us upwards of fifty thousand dollars for him to become a United States citizen, which to me is just it's asinine. Right. I mean, why would you make that so difficult in, in any in, in my opinion, it should be the opposite. It should be easier to become a U.S. citizen if if you've gone and, and done on a work permit and are familiar with the country, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's just unfortunate. Right. Because once again, I don't want to get political, but you look back 100 years, you know, what caused gigantic economic boom in our country was a mass immigration that led to labor and industry. Right, coming from all over the world to the United States, because it was it was the place you wanted to be, and it's still like that. People still want to come here, but it's so hard for them to become a United States citizen that it, it's a big problem. It's a big problem. Could, we could really get in, keep going on the labor, and, but uh, we'll save that for another podcast or for the Beltway Beef podcast that uh, our friend Hunter hosts uh, e- each week in the D.C. office for NCBA. But uh, uh, one area that, that I would just maybe like to touch on, Russell, with you is, you know, especially up in, in my neck of the woods, we're, we're seeing more smaller packing plants come online. A lot of, a lot of federal and state funding uh, going towards uh, getting these plants online. And there's also proposals for plants that would have several thousand head a day or week. We've seen one that was supposed to be uh, in South Dakota uh, in, in Rapid, I believe, is where they were going to do that. Uh, the cities did not put forward any support for that, it sounds like. Then the rumor was Cheyenne, Wyoming, and the city, uh, 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 the founding fathers down there saying, nope, we don't have the water for it. And, and I think a lot of that has to do with labor. It has to do with infrastructure, with housing, and uh there's a lot of people both sides of the aisle that know that th- there's going to be uh, a foreign workforce that comes in to work on these. What are the challenges with uh, when we look at trying to get employees to, to work in these processing facilities? Uh, what what uh, Again, I, I just listed off a lot of factors out there that, that people are concerned about, but what, what are those key things that we're seeing in trying to get packing plant employees, trying to get all these, uh, these uh, beeves and also on the poultry end? I think the big thing is it kind of hit it, you know, it's community acceptance of that agriculture sector, you know, uh, trying to work with the community to understand what modern processing looks like, because I think a lot of times we have in our mind what it used to be, you know, we think, you know, our parents and grandparents remember what, what poultry and, and pork and beef processing looked like you know, during the 40s and 50s and 60s. And what does a modern, true state-of-the-art facility really look like today? I I don't know. I have not been in one, a true state-of-the-art modern facility that's fresh, brand new. And we've got some smaller locker plants. There would be more of a regional or even a local locker plant that may be killing, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20 head a week at the most. 
you know, those are nice plants and people are used to those plants, but the big ones, it's community acceptance. And then also, how does that community really welcome that workforce? Because we know that it does come with a different set of workforce people that come in. And we've seen the, the different cultures come through, you know, even in Southwest Kansas, during the late 60s and 70s, we saw the migration of Vietnamese coming into the Southwest Kansas and then the the more Hispanic populations, the Latino populations coming in to fill those jobs. So it's a it's a change of culture. And it's also how do those communities work with those cultures to embrace them, to include them, to provide uh, a space for them and embed them and integrate them within the community and, and work with your founding fathers, as you mentioned there, Lane. How do you work with that steadfast culture that's been there forever to to understand that it's going to take everybody to make the whole engine work and move forward. It's really about community acceptance and, and how do we work with that outside of the resources, because the two W's I always say water and workforce are our two biggest issues when we look at large industry. Uh, gentlemen, we've been talking just over an hour and 14 minutes. It doesn't seem that long. <laughs> I think we've had some great dialogue and, uh, we, we could keep this going, but I, I don't want to tire our listeners out too much on the podcast today. But we, we all know that when we look at sustainability in agriculture, um, it, it takes every sector, whether that's the, the local implement dealer, the NRCS, FSA office, the ag teacher, uh, to, to the actual production agriculture family still out in the countryside. So my last question would be for you both is what can we do to ensure the well-being and sustainability of the workforce in, in, in beef production? Um, I, I know that's that, that's kind of a wide-ranging question, but uh, in your area of expertise, what, what are your thoughts on that? I think the first thing is that the public needs to know that it is a, it is a good and necessary job, right? I mean, it's a, it's a substantial part of our economy. I, I, I've heard it a lot of times and I'm repeating it, but they, you know, they say food security is national security, right? And we, we play a big part in the, in the economic, you know, um, success of this country. And I, you know, I, I just, I wish more people understood what the job was like, right? And that you didn't just have to be a, a farm kid to want to know what it's like to come back into beef production and do that on the cow calf side, you know, on the feedlot side. Uh, so I, you know, probably comes down honestly to, to doing a better job telling our story at the end of the day, right. And, and letting more people see what it is that we do. Right. I think we avoid that most times because we're worried that of the negative potential opinions. Right. But there, that story is not hard to tell. If you just think about it for a little bit, um, there's so many positive things. But rather than talk about the positive things, I think most of us just put our heads down and go back to work and let those workers go work at McDonald's or, you know, go get a four year degree and work as a sales rep at a, at a chemical company or a nutrition company or Transover or something like that. Right. And we just need to be more deliberate about saying, hey, this this is a good career. Look at all the things we can do for them. I'm speaking as an individual operation. Look at all the things we can do to give you a living wage and, and help you be successful in your life and look at the fulfilling part of it, right? Like look what we're doing to help the environment, like the way we move these cattle. Um, look at how well we treat these animals and what everything we do to ensure that 
the beef that ends up on the plate is the most delicious thing we can possibly offer. Everyone plays a part in that and you can play a part too. I just don't think enough people know about the positive aspect of it. You know, I, I think my two things would be, uh, we need to be intentional and proactive. I think looking at how we recruit and how we, and where we talk to potential employees has changed dramatically. It's like we mentioned earlier, you know, do we need to be talking to the fourth graders? Do we need to be talking to the schools, the junior high? Where, where at that age, where, at what age do they make that decision? They make those decisions all the way through because they're being hammered with those decision makers or those influencers throughout their life cycle, throughout, not life cycle, but throughout their lifetime and in the formative years in their education through those first 12 years or 16 years, they're being hammered from all directions. Where are we at? Are we in the conversation? Are we being intentional and being in the classroom? Are we truly looking at community and technical colleges? You know, and, and that's one place that, that I think we a lot of times overlook. I, I feel like we do in Kansas anyway, because I think back to a lot of the, the fellow classmates I had going through community college, they were there on a livestock judging scholarship, a meat judging scholarship, or a rodeo scholarship, and that's the only reason they went to community college. So they could continue that sport for another two years. And then they left and they went to work wherever they could. And I I think if we would be more intentional at getting into spaces and talking to those students that may not come from a true ag background, but have an agricultural interest and really talking to them, like Nick said, and telling our story very intentional and proactive to audiences that we typically have not spoken to and telling that sustainability story of agriculture and beef production and really talking about the great opportunities we have in agriculture in their own backyard. So. Can I add just one more thing, you know, about being intentional Russell, I, I appreciate that comment. I think one of the things that's difficult, especially like when we talk about all right, getting labor down to the farm and ranch level, think about the competitive environment there. Like, all right, so I'm John Deere. I've got a whole department of people that specialize in going out and, and going to career fairs. And I have a brand, I have brand recognition and I can go to the high school. I can set up the program. It's really hard for a farmer to, to compete with that. Like, for me to go in and, and have brand recognition at, at a technical college or a four-year college or a high school, maybe local we do, but to have the benefit of, a, of an organ, a large organization behind you that has resources is really difficult. So it'd be interesting to talk, you know, and I don't know if, you know, if, if NCBA plays a role there or if, you know, state level organizations play a role there about how do we direct people's interest back to actually going to the cow-calf part of the, of, of the sector or the feedlot part of the sector, I'd be interested to, to see how someone would want to tackle that because I think that would make a difference too, rather than just expecting the individual farmer rancher who really doesn't have the capability to do it to go out there and source, you know, and create that that buzz and source those candidates. No, I think that's a, a great opportunity, and especially as we see. It's also a, a way to foster a relationship between state associations with with NCBA and also with collegiates. I, I know at Montana State University they have a collegiate Montana Stock Growers Association Club, and it's a great way for that engagement to uh, continue on into advocacy uh, on the state and national level. But, Nick, to your point, 
maybe that's what we should be emphasizing on is some of these relationships and uh, utilizing our land grants and and for for especially uh, programs where you do have to go out and intern for a few weeks on an operation or for these more intense ranch management programs you know how do we maybe dial that back to the the student that is just getting an animal science or like my liberal arts degree in the college of ag as i refer to it i was an extension <laughs> major uh, agriculture education relations i call it liberal arts because it was crop science it was animal science it, it was everything how do we do that I, I i think that's just a good question to pose as we conclude our talk today is what can we do better at uh, helping uh promote these employment opportunities and the sustainability of agriculture through employment environment and uh, financially as well. Um, I just want to remind our listeners that, of course, uh, the 2023 Cattle Industry Convention and NCBA Trade Show, that's going to be February 1st through the 3rd in the great city of New Orleans, Louisiana. And uh, more of this is going to be discussed in the Cattlemen's Colleges, uh, where uh, Dr. Plashka will be we be speaking at there. So uh, get that on your radar. Get registered for a convention and attend uh, the outstanding uh, Zoetta-sponsored uh, Cattlemen's Colleges because it truly is a, a way that, you know, you can take things home and improve your operation and your rural community along the way. Gentlemen, a- any last quick comments that you would just like to share with us here today? All right. Well, I, I think I talked them both out, but... <laughs> I appreciate you both joining us here today. Again, this is why I enjoy the Cattlemen's Call podcast so much because we're having conversations that matter to the cattlemen and women and the agribusiness owners and and all in rural America here on the Cattlemen's Call podcast. Uh, If this is your first time joining us, thank you. Make sure and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcast devices. Share it on social media. Tell your friends about it. And uh, just remember, stay safe uh, out in the countryside and uh, have a great fall here in 2022. Friends, that will do it for today's Cattleman's Call podcast. I'm Lee Nordland. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with Lane Nordland. For more information, visit ncba.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today.